Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theater Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman from the American Theater Wing. Today our guest has years of experience in England, his native country, and not a little bit of experience in this country as well. As far back as 1975 in the Rocky Horror Show on Broadway, also in Travesties, Amadeus, My Favorite Year, and most recently and currently in Monty Python's Spamalot on Broadway. Tim Curry, welcome to Downstage Center. Thank you very much. It's a very interesting uh, uh, you know, list of shows here from the Rocky Horror Show and Amadeus and Spamalot, kind of uh, an interesting mix. Yes, I've always sort of really tried to... to, to um, to work in as wide a sort of range as possible. When I was about, uh, I, I suppose, about 19, and I first left school, I mean, like sort of high school, which was a boarding school in England, I went to Morocco with a great friend of mine who was um, who's now the art critic on the London Times. And I remember sitting very so- solemnly at the foot of a palm tree um, with a, a bottle of very cheap Spanish brandy. And just before we threw up, we we, we decided that we would um, that we would explore all of our contradictions and that we wouldn't get trapped into into just you know one idea in exploring one idea as an artist we would try to you know do everything that was possible f- to extend our talents as much as possible and so i've always really had that at, at the at the back of my mind and tried to work in as wide a range of media and kinds of theater as possible well, you got your professional start in England. I was struck by lying your way about your resume into the West End production of Hair. That's right. Yes, I did. I... So what were the lies you had to tell? Well, I... <laughs> <laughs> I had to lie because you had to have an equity card to do the audition, and I didn't. So um, I said that I had. And... Um, by the time, and I did about four auditions, and by the time they realized that I didn't have an equity card, they decided that they wanted me in the show, and they persuaded equity to give me an equity card. <laughs> so if I hadn't been shameless and lying through my teeth, I wouldn't have been in the show. Had you been doing non-equity work before that, though? No, it was, no I, I was straight out of college. So you came back from Morocco and went into hair? No, I came back from Morocco and went to university, but I came ah. straight out of university and into hair, which was pretty extraordinary, really. Were you doing work in university? Were you studying theater? Yes. I, well, when I, when I went to university, there were only three uh, in England who had a, a, a drama course, um, which was uh, Bristol, Manchester, and Birmingham. Um, and and even those, you had to do them as a sort of combined honours degree. And I, I went to Birmingham because it was near Stratford and it has um, a wonderful English department and it also um, has the Shakespeare Institute. So I, I figured that if I was going to have to be that academic about acting, that was probably the place to be. I mean, I was pretty – I wasn't a great student, I have to say. I basically just acted all the time. And in fact – one of the lecturers tried to stop me taking my final exams because he'd never actually met me. Hmm. Um, <laughs> you seem to have a history of uh, not going to school. Duplicity. And, <laughs> funny resumes and all that. But at the time you were at university, if, if, if I time this roughly right, hmm. would have been the heyday of the original Monty Python series. Is that about right? Um, I, a bit later than that, I think, okay. that they were. Uh, I'm not sure. I was, I was at university from... Um, 
five to sixty-eight. Oh, okay, they came just. They、after. came just after that.、Um, So they would have been really there about 1970, early 70s, I think. Actually, I think the original series was about 69. Was it? Yeah. yeah. But、so、they were already writing for Marty Feldman, and、um, he was a、uh, he was a great friend of mine. And、um, now, were, were you a fan of, of Marty Python back in the Trey day? Oh, huge fan! Yes.、Right. Uh-huh. But you see, one of the things that's interesting is that Monty Python at the time in England, although a successful show, was not this great big, you know, smash hit. Wow, gosh, must tune in. It went on at like ten o'clock at night or something, and、um, and really,、uh, the reason that, that it was they managed to make it at all was a because of the time slot, and b because it didn't cost very much. I mean, they just left literally left them alone. Nobody was overlooking them at all. So they really just did whatever they felt like doing, and and. And sort of pushed the the boundaries of、um, television comedy、um, in an unprecedented kind of way. Well, it was in an era when television could still be creative, unlike today, which I don't think it's as original as it was back in the fifties, sixties, even into the seventies. Oh, not remotely. No, it's、uh, corporate. It's、uh, you know, it's、exactly. just.、Uh, So, as a fan, when you're as as I believe you've you've spoken of previously.、Um, You know, you'd gotten to know Eric Idle over the years, but but that material—that's material that people who loved it have been reciting to to to, to friends for years. The chance to come in and actually play Graham Chapman's part must have been exciting and daunting. Both, I mean, absolutely both,、um, and daunting. You know, for a couple of reasons. One, because I admired Graham enormously.、Um, Two because he couldn't, you know, talk back because unfortunately he's gone, and and three because you know Arthur is very much the straight man of the movie and indeed of the play.、Um, he's kind of the anchor of it, and he.、Um, so I, I, you know, I wasn't really sure how it was going to work at all.、Um, And in fact, I was looking at my original rehearsal script the other day, and it's so so different from what's on Broadway now. Oh well, tell us about that. Well, I had a great deal less to do. <laughs>、um, in fact, I remember being warned, rather, you know, cautioned by Eric from the beginning, who said, you know, look, this is a six-person ensemble piece, and、um, it, it's not necessarily what you're used to in the in the musical world.、Um, and I said, you know. That's just fine by me, as long as it's funny and has great songs. I want to be there,、um, but I didn't have as much to do at all, really.、Um, but I think it became clear as we rehearsed it, as we got closer and closer to going to Chicago. In fact, on Thanksgiving Day, which was too. Which was a Thursday, obviously, and Friday and Saturday we rehearsed. Sunday we got on a plane to Chicago to open technical rehearsals for for the opening in Chicago. Act two was completely rewritten on Thanksgiving Day, and we came in on Friday, read it cold, rehearsed it, ran it through on Saturday for the investors and backers and producers, and got on a plane to Chicago. And it was quite different. And that was when the whole idea of of、uh, the quest being to put on a musical on Broadway,、um, my involvement with the Lady of the Lake,、um, it was a it it,、uh, it was a it, what it did was give was give it a sort of narrative heart, which the film actually doesn't have. The film is really a a, a, a big Monty Python sketch show,、um, and. 
was the earlier version much more closely aligned with the movie? Because clearly yes. Act Two veers way off the movie other yes. than taking those same characters. Yes. No, it had a lot of the original sketches of the movie which have, which have gone. Um, the Bridge of Death has gone. Um, Burning the, the Witch has gone. Um, there was a wonderful, wonderful song um, which the cow sang before she was... Uh, sacrificed, uh, which uh, Sara Ramirez also sang, which was dazzlingly brilliant, which she sang as a mixture of Marlene Dietrich and uh, Edith Piaf in a sort of fishtail dress that looked like a Guernsey cow and a, and a Dietrich wig and rhinestone horns. And the song was, I'm just a lonely cow who has a dream. And it was extraordinary. Um, but it slowed things down. And, you know, Mike... Nichols, who is the master of narrative and the master of structure and was and whose favorite song it was, you know, said, it's my favorite thing, but it has to go. Really? And actually, when it went and the witch song went, he came, I remember he came to my dressing room and said, what do you think? And I said, now I'm driving a Porsche, hmm. you know, and it's the... Uh, you have you have to be that ruthless. I mean, the, the woods are full of songs that were cut out of town. Um, but I, you know, I think it's rare for a, for a second act to be so completely reshaped, so close to the opening. Well, that one song that you you mentioned that you won't succeed on Broadway is really a, a great spoof of Broadway currently, and takes a lot of digs at some other shows like Fiddler and anything Andrew Lloyd Webber. Very, very different sort of song. It has a big Broadway feel to it. Uh, I don't know that that has anything very much to say about Andrew Lloyd Webber. I think it's just a very, very funny idea. And I remember when I got the demo, um, I played it to two people. I played it to my voiceover agent and, and, and great, great friend in, in Hollywood called Marsha Hurwitz and her, her husband, Richard, who used to be a trumpet player in, in the pit on Broadway. Uh, and I played it to Stockard Channing. And Stockard said, you can't do that. You can't possibly do that song on Broadway. Why? You, you can't do it. And, and she was so politically correct about it. I said, you can't, you can't sing a song about how you can't succeed on Broadway if you don't have any Jews. And I said, but uh, you, you haven't perhaps noticed that it's funny? And then um, I played it to the Hurwitzes, who literally... And well, they had had one martini. They they literally fell off the stool, bar stools, when they heard it. They thought it was so funny. Um, but yes, it has a. It it. it I mean, we certainly do um, quite a bit of fiddler stuff in it. Mm. Um, and it's just a. I mean, one of the things that I love so about Eric and about the Pythons in general is that there are no cows sacred enough to take a, a fusillade at. Um, and it's the great key to, to to their sense of humor. And I think one of the things that I love looking out at the audience for this show is that there are very often at least two generations of Mo Python fans out there. There are people sort of my age and, and 10 years less, and then they're progeny, you know, they're 20-year-old kids or they're 19-year-old kids, or and there are 35-year-old frat guys, you know, who all got stoned together watching Monty Python. You know, there's an extraordinary demographic that is coming to see this show. 
there's a very funny reaction that happens because certainly it's early in the run. We're watching the show. Um, scenes are greeted with applause. You usually go to shows and an actor comes on and everybody's thrilled to see the actor. Here, as soon as people realize, certainly it's mostly in the first act, as people realize what the bit is that's going to be done, it's hailed like an old friend. And then you have the other people who have to discover the routine over the course of, of, of the material itself. And what's interesting, I think, I mean, that, that's interesting in itself because it is not something that's ever happened before, I don't think, um, is, that, is that it works for both of them. It works for both parties because um, I've talked to a lot of people who've never seen Monty Python and and loved every minute of it. And um, and the Monty Python fans who are, A, thrilled to see it and, B, you know, feel, I guess, that we've pulled it off. I mean, because that was the danger, I think, that we would get up there and do these famous bits and – not doing it very well. Or, or they might in their mind compare it to what they remember from the movie. Or I guess even if they see that there's a bit that is a favorite that was in the movie that's not in the show, are they disappointed that certain these bits don't exist anymore? I really don't know. I mean, I haven't, um, I haven't asked anybody that. I suppose I – people actually – I don't know. It's the weirdest thing. It's – it's such a great show to be in because people afterwards just look like the Cheshire Cat. You know, mm-hmm. they just look like they've had an enormous bowl of cream, and and you think, gee, I helped do that. <laughs> I mean, it's a very, very lovely thing to do. Now we talk about some of these famous bits when you know the first time we see the killer rabbit, people react wildly. Oh my God, it's a killer rabbit! One of those deals. You were in the Rocky Horror Show, which developed a cult-like following. People came to see it over and over again. Yeah. Do you get the sense that in uh, Spamalot, there's going to be a cult-like following as well? It's the same sort of a thing. Well, in, in, in um, many ways. Yeah, the cult's I mean, already there. The cult's already there. So do they return to the theater, do you think? Or is uh, it too early in the run to really tell? I, I think it's too early in the run to really tell, and actually you can't get in. <laughs> That's the problem. You can't get the tickets. Um, uh, I mean, I think they will, yes. Absolutely. Uh, happily, they're not talking back because uh-huh. um, uh, I would have to administer a spanking if they did. How about wearing the um, costumes? No, they're not wearing <laughs> they're the costumes they're, they're either. either. Yet. No, I mean that's you know that was a that was a sort of phenomenon of its own, um, and I think very much a kind of rite of passage sort of phenomenon. Um, I mean, I've always had a sense with Rocky Horror that 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 it was a kind of teenage rite, rite of passage where where kids you know finally said you know gee mom am I old enough now to go the, you know, will you let me now go to the Rocky Horror Show or sneak out and go anyway. Um, and and that's a great thing. I mean, that's a sort of extraordinary thing. It's it's like, you know, being part of a Gail Sheehy book, you know. Um, <laughs> one, one major difference, I guess, between the movie and the Broadway show is this is a musical with the word musical underlined. And yeah. King Arthur actually sings and dances in Spamalot, the musical. Yes. What you, you, You're in any number of songs. I underline maybe close to a dozen different songs that King Arthur is in. Is there a favorite of, of the kings of yours? Oh, my f- absolutely favorite song is, is I'm All Alone because Eric and John wrote it in the the end of a very hot summer before we started to rehearse in um, in New York. And I think largely because originally Arthur didn't have a great deal to sing and, and, um, and that had been noticed <laughs> by everyone, uh, not least me. And, he, and they wrote this 
really wonderful melody, which is also in the show very funny. Um, and uh, it's really a duet with Patsy, my sidekick, and he's um, poor Arthur has been left alone in the forest because all of his knights have f- fled from the Knights of Knee. From a Spamalot, Monty Python Spamalot, the musical at the Schubert Theater, I'm All Alone, King Arthur, Patsy and the Knights is credited in the playbill. How does it feel being in a hit musical with audiences literally lined up months in advance? You know, you, know, you saw that for months in advance. It must be quite an exciting time. It's a very exciting time. I mean, I've been very... I, I've had a, some great good fortune in the theater, and um, uh, there is nothing like the feeling of hearing an audience pouring the ground to, to for the show to start. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've had it in the, the very serious theater, and I've had it in musicals, and, and there is just nothing like it because it revs you up, you know. It makes you... Uh, I mean, it puts a dreadful onus on you, of course, to deliver. Mm-hmm. But that's a wonderful thing. I mean, because just to know that people are really uh, can't wait for it to begin is a fantastic thing. And theatre in itself is such a celebration that to... Um, it, it, the other day, uh, um, somebody showed up at the stage door who, who was the head of the Clan Curry Society. <laughs> and uh, there is a clan, and... Um, Curry actually comes from McVurich, which is Gaelic. And the McVurichs were the Bardic clan of the Western Isles. And when you had a wedding or a funeral, you sent for the McVurich, you sent for the Curry, and he had a lyre and he composed, you know, uh, an ode. Um, he also would lead uh, the clan into battle. And th- the motto of Clan Curry is inspire to victory. <laughs> and I thought that that was so appropriate when I heard it because that's how I feel when I hear the overture. <laughs> of course, King Arthur is the one that everybody else revolves around. You are the, the, the rock, the solid rock that all this craziness revolves about. Which is lovely because he is kind of the linchpin of what, what, what goes on, yes. Well, what, what's interesting, we talked a little bit about your, your breaking into professional theater, but it's interesting, you know, you're in this phenomenon now. And, of course, you were associated with a phenomenon, namely Rocky Horror, which really became the big phenomenon only after the film had been released and failed. When you first began doing it, and I was even surprised, I sort of knew this in the back of my mind, that it was originally done at the Royal Court Theatre, which now we think of as you know serious, great British new plays. We don't think of something like Rocky Horror coming out of there. What, what was that experience? What was it... What did you think you were going into when you started doing that show? Well, you know, it wasn't so extraordinary that it was done there because what the Royal Court Theatre was always about, and and it was my fifth play there, Hmm. um, was about about new writing. And in 1973, when it was written, it was a perfect sort of distillation of, of... of the zeitgeist. I mean, it was completely what was happening in 1973, which was comic books, pop art, uh, f- the 50s, rock and roll, and horror movies. I mean, it was a dazzling collection of the things that everyone all in their tw- early 20s or mid-20s or whatever was fascinated by at the time. Um, 
And so th- I, I don't think it's a mystery that it was done there because it was so smart. But it's just from this perspective. From this perspective, sur- absolutely, I get it. Yeah, and and of course it took off in seconds. I mean, um, it was like Topsy; it just sort of growed, you know, and um, and it ran in London for I think twelve years or something. I mean, it ran forever in London. Um, it ran here for five weeks to 200 bewildered nurses with free tickets. You, know? you did do it in L.A. first, though, where it was We did successful. it in L.A., which, where it was a great big hit at the Roxy. Um, and here it ran for five weeks. And then uh, the movie came out and tanked, and uh, I had moved on, you know. I mean, it, it's it. And this was exactly 30 years ago, really, because um, later that same year I came back... Um, I don't know whether it was 75 or 76. It was 75. 75. I came back with travesties in the same year. So I was in, like, the first, uh, the, 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 the biggest flop and the biggest hit of the, of the year in, in 1975. I mean, travesties. And it wasn't the case that when you went into travesties, it was, oh, Tim Curry's stretching and getting past the stereotype. Nobody in New York had really seen Rocky Horror no. speak up. No, they hadn't. I mean... Certainly, there'd been enough sort of publicity about Rocky Horror. And I think people were um, kind of surprised that I was coming back with the Royal Shakespeare Company and, you know, playing a Dadaist um, in, in a Tom Stoppard play. Um, I wasn't, but... Uh, and that was exactly really what I wanted to do. And, I mean, it happened because I'd just done a, a, a film that Tom Stoppard had adapted and... He said, you know, he should he should come with the play to Broadway. So it was very interesting to be in a big flop and a big hit in the same year on Broadway because I remember at some point being in the Russian tea room and a bunch of New Yorkers who were talking about something they'd seen and, and somebody was saying, I loved it, and somebody said, I hated it. Oh, I loved it. I hated it. And I remember <laughs> scraping my chair back and leaping to my feet and saying, is there no gray area in this city? <laughs> Is there no room for nuance? So, this is New York. Everybody. Absolutely. Now I get it. You're out there. You're working. You're being very versatile. You've done this outrageous musical comedy. You've done this brilliant stop hard play. Then the movie appears and the groundswell begins around 77, 78. How did that affect the roles you were offered or the roles you chose to take? Interestingly, you know, it didn't affect them that much at all. I thought that it would, and I was sort of careful. I sort of had to distance myself somewhat from it. Um, but the interesting thing is that uh, I think in a curious kind of way, my career has always been um, encouraged and um, promoted by mavericks, you know, by, you know, by... By people who who didn't who could see past their nose, <laughs> you know, and, and thought that it was interesting that that I, that I, I mean, Stephen Frears when when he wanted me to play a, a Victorian clerk, clerk in in a, in a classic Victorian comic novel, I said, "What makes you think I can do do this?" And he said, "Well, if you can do that, meaning Frankenfurter, you can do anything." It's interesting looking both at your theater credits in this country alone. Uh, 
as diverse as Travesties and Amadeus on the one hand and Spamalot and Rocky Horror Show on the other. Films like Rocky Horror Show, Annie, uh, Hunt for Red October, Muppet Treasure Island, very diverse. How do you consider yourself as an actor? Are you, uh, do you consider yourself an, an actor, a, a comic actor? I mean, what, what labels would you apply? What adjectives would you apply to yourself? Journeyman. Journeyman. Really? Yeah. I really think of myself as a working actor, uh-huh. you know? I mean, uh, a working actor who's perhaps been luckier than some and 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 who, because of his track record, um, you know, gets to do some good stuff. Um, and happily now, I mean, the weird thing is that after a while, this stuff just accumulates and you accumulate uh, various kinds of audience, you know, and... Uh, and in a curious kind of way, I see them all outside the stage door at the Schubert Theatre. And there's been a, a, um, one lady who's, who's brought sort of week after week, I don't know when she bought her tickets, but she comes week after week and gives me a, a program of uh, various theatre things that I've done over the years. She had one from Hare in London. She had all of the stuff that I'd done at the National Theatre. She had... Um, and and she says this there's you know twenty to come, hmm. so um, a uh, Tim Curry groupie. <laughs> I, I guess a Tim Curry collector, who, um, <laughs> because you know I said, gee, this is so extraordinary because I, I don't have any of this stuff. I've never been sentimental about that stuff. I don't have posters or programs. And now, of course, that I'm you know creaking onto the stage <laughs> at the Super <laughs> Theatre, it's lovely to have those things. Um, you mentioned Amadeus, and and I, it it really bears talking about because that was a brilliant landmark production for many people. And indeed, I read somewhere in an interview, and uh, I never totally reliant on these things, but that you said that the opening night of Amadeus was the happiest moment of your life. It was a very very happy moment, I must say. I mean, it was an extraordinary moment, really, because. It was. It came at a sort of perfect time. I'd be. I. I. I was living in New York. I'd been making rock and roll records. I had a sort of rock and roll period, and I. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah, and I, you know, wrote a, a, a lot of them, and um, but Peter Schaffer, I had, and I had become friends in '75 when I was doing Travesties. We met then, and we were great friends. Um, and I used to go every Sunday evening to his apartment and he there are two things that he cooks well one is roast chicken and one is roast lamb and it's very sort of english sunday lunch kind of cooking <laughs> and from the mo- and he's also i think one of the funniest men on the planet and and i would laugh from the moment i got in the door until the moment i left and we would just shake with laughter and um we were great great friends and i remember a friend of his saying to me um you know he's writing a a really wonderful part for you. And I said, don't say that to me. Don't say it. It's not... First of all, you know it'll go to somebody else. And um, and it's it's very bad of you to say this. Um, but it is odd that, he, that I would go there, you know, with chunks of music that I'd written and play them for him. Um, and, you know, 18 months later or two years later, I've, I found myself playing a composer for him. And it was an extraordinary thing. And out of town um, in Washington, when we worked on the second act a lot, um, which was exhausting and exhilarating and quite like, unlike anything I've ever done in the theater before, um, was just a dazzling 
time to be alive because, you know, I was, I guess, 35. I could really just, I could turn on the pad of a pen, you know. I could do a whole scene anew the next night, having still played the one that we did the night before. And, and you were throwing yourself about that stage, and it bears mentioning who your co-stars were in in that cast. Certainly you were on stage with now Sir Ian McKellen. Mm-hmm. And the original Costanza was... Jane Seymour. Right. Jane Seymour. So, so. But you, you mentioned the rock and roll career. We've been talking about your theater career, the films... You were writing and recording. You did three albums in the late 70s, early 80s. I did one album during the afternoons when I was playing Mozart at night. Hmm. And the second half of the second three months of my run in Mozart, I was making Annie during the day. Hmm. I don't know how I did it, actually. I was a kid, I guess. And how one keeps the different parts separate in your own mind. It was very peculiar because I used to go into the recording studio at 12 until about... 5.30, 5.30, 6, and then I would go home and take a shower and pretend the day was starting anew. And I would get into the theatre really early and be sort of in my costume and makeup and wig because and, that was quite quite a, a, a costume and wig and stuff. And I would, you know, go around the theatre and say hello to everybody and, you know, kind of immerse myself in that world um, because I had to shake off um, the last gasp of disco. <laughs> you know, it's it odd. Um, and then in the midst of doing Amadeus, then you were also going off and shooting a film for John Huston? I was, yes. I, I mean, I mean it's was, Annie, but it's John Huston. I know, it was John Huston, which of course was why I was there. I mean, he, um, <laughs> he said, I remember going to see him at the Sherry Netherlands, um, and he, he said, uh, is there, is there anything you want to ask me about doing this uh, show? Is there any kind of acting thing you want to talk to me about? <laughs> and I said, well, I, I, I don't think there is, really. He said, no, no problems that you're wrestling with or anything. I said, no, I, I, I thought I'd just sort of get up there and do it, if that's all right with you. And he said, oh, thank God. God! <laughs> he said, you know, a lot of actors really need to talk about their work. And, of course, I listen, but thank God. He was probably waiting for you to ask the question, what is my motivation in this scene? Or something like that. <laughs> he, was, he was clearly very thrilled that very, I was just going to show up and do it. As very relieved as well on that. <laughs> but then from there, for the stage... There was a hiatus of a decade in here, in, here on Broadway. On Broadway, yes. I, I actually went back at that point to the National Theatre and worked there. In fact, I remember the, just as we were closing the filming of Annie, Joe Layton, who was the sort of supervising choreographer, offered me a musical uh, about Charlie Chaplin. And I said, actually, I'm going to go back to England to the National Theatre. And he went to John and he said, John, you know, this kid is out of his mind. He's going back to the National Theatre. I'm offering him this huge part on Broadway. And John said, it's exactly what Charlie would have done, (laughs) given the opportunity. So then you returned to Broadway. 
Eventually. Eventually, um, in 92, my uh, favorite year. Was that well, your you did No, before that, uh, I did The Art of Success, I think, You did The Art of Success at Manhattan Theater Club. I have to ask, as we're talking through the roles, uh, mm. the, the bad boy issue seems to keep coming up with the stage roles. Certainly... Certainly not in travesties, but but you know, art of success was was a decidedly confrontational and somewhat. Um, well, actually, I mean, Tristan Zara in Tristan Zara in travesties is a bad boy. I mean, what did used to come up was genii. I mean, I've played, I played Mozart, I've played Tristan Zara, I've played Shakespeare in the life of Shakespeare on television. I played Mozart, um, and I played Hogarth, who was a great English painter. Um, so. And they were all so you were pretty, the go-to guy for historical bad boys. I guess. I guess. It's one of those faces, and I think it's uh, – and it's – I guess it goes back to the maverick thing too. It's like that, you know, just – it's partly just a sort of excess of energy, I think. So when you did return to Broadway, it was my favorite year in mm-hmm. 92. Yeah. How did that come about? Now, you, you've been in England for the last 10 years. Well, I, back I, in New York. I, I actually did Me and My Girl on the road here. Uh-huh. Um, I was doing a film in, in Arkansas with Annie Potts playing basically Jim Baker. Um, and she was playing Tammy Faye, as it were. We were the Reverend Ray and his wife, Darla. And I was asked if I wanted to do Me and My Girl and I, on the road. And I thought, no, I didn't really. And then... I realized that actually after being at the National Theatre for almost two years, I completely ran out of money, and they offered me a great deal to do Me and My Girl. And so they flew me into New York to see it, and I remember having dinner afterwards with Mike Ockrent, who who I just loved and was a great director. And um, he said, what did you think? And I said, I think you should call it Robert Lindsay in Me, (laughs) because my girl doesn't get much of a look, look in. Um, so I did that for a year to sort of recoup, um, and I actually had a wonderful time. And at the end of it, uh, in the middle of it, we played at the Pantages in L.A., and, and I sort of realized that I didn't want to go back to that sort of English theater world. I wanted to, I wanted to make movies. You know, I wanted to... Before it was too late, I wanted to do movies and concentrate on movies. So I was there, and then... Um, and then they sent me, you know, the, they sent me The Art of Success, which I loved. And then they and they sent me My Favorite Year. And I couldn't, re- I couldn't resist either of them, actually. Well, in My Favorite Year, you were taking on a role that had been created on film by Peter O'Toole. Yeah. So one thing now to, to, do a role, to do a role played by Graham Chapman, wonderful performer, but Peter O'Toole, that's, that's another, another level entirely. Well, you know, I think I think this sort of stuff is less daunting to English actors because, really, if you work in the classical theatre, which I did, you know, for 20 years, you're always playing a role that was made famous by somebody. I mean, I did Love for Love, the Congreve play, which in the role that Tattle, that Laurence Olivier had made famous, and you can't be daunted by it. You know, somebody's got to play it. It might as well be you. And if you fall over, you fall over. And, um, I mean, certainly... Um, you know, my favorite year had its problems. I, uh, I loved the score. And actually, I mean, I loved the script. I think the problem really with my favorite year was that it never in the end quite decided who it was about. Um, and and it needed, uh, actually, it sort of needed an axe man like Mike Nichols to come in and say, this is what it's about and this is what the audience, you know, the audience 
need to root for somebody and they need to be taken on a journey. And if you go down too many side roads, you don't have anything. You have a sort of map, but you don't have a destination. You mentioned the score of My Favorite Year. Do you have a favorite song from My Favorite Year? Oh, If the World Were Like the Movies, I think, is a wonderful, wonderful song. Uh, what? I love uh, uh, I love Lynn Ahrens and Stephen Flaherty. I think they're just such a fantastic creative pair. I did uh, Christmas Carol that Lynn did, um, and uh, I adore them both. Why don't we play the song? Set up for us how it worked in, in the show, if you would. Well, in, in the show, as in the movie, um, uh, he... Alan Swan is um, a, a washed-up movie star uh, who was a sort of Errol Flynn kind of uh, movie star. Um, and his career has been brief, but but uh, stellar. Uh, he's an alcoholic. He's a mess. He has no relationship with his only child. Um, and uh, he doesn't like himself too much. And um, And this is... Him wishing that the world, you know, if his, if his life had been like the movies, it would be like this. From my favorite year, if the world were like the movies, Tim Curry, currently starring in Spamalot on Broadway. Tim, you've been in such diverse roles between stage and, and film and all that, and rock and roll career. If I were to look at your CD collection, what would I find? In your, you've done classical roles on stage. You've done rock and roll CDs. You've been in movies like Annie. And what, what, what kind of music do you listen to at home? You probably find. Well, do you know, it's funny. Once I stopped making records, I actually didn't switch on the radio for about four years, because you get so you get so sort of tyrannized by radio, um, and actually. Um, You'd probably find, uh, well, you'd find a lot of world music. You'd find a lot of uh, South American music. You'd find a lot of African music. You'd find a lot of classical music. Hmm. Um, Any Broadway uh, music? Rock and roll music? Um, yes, sir. I mean, uh, not a lot. You'd find, um, you'd find a lot of uh, jazz. You'd find Billie Holiday. You'd find Bonnie Raitt. You'd find um, you'd find the great melodists. Really, you'd find Mel Torme. Hmm. Um, it's a very I've got very Catholic taste in music. Very eclectic, also it seems. Well, as a kid, I was a great jazz fan. I mean, I actually got Louis Armstrong's autograph when I was twelve on on the railway station, Paddington Station. Huh. Uh, he was wearing a sort of leather cowboy suit, and I went up and I said, can I have your autograph? This is satellite, isn't it? Yeah, yes. So I can tell you what he said. Um, <laughs> I said, can I have your autograph, please? And I was 12, and he said, you don't know who the fuck I am. <laughs> and I said, yes, I do, sir. You're Louis Armstrong, and I have several of your records with the hot five. <laughs> what did he say And then? he said, God damn it. And uh, he gave me my autograph, and I went to see him because... Um, Bristol, which was very near Bath, where my school was, uh, had a huge um, auditorium called the Hippodrome. And I saw him and Basie and um, uh, Ella Fitzgerald. And, you know, I saw everybody as they came through England, as they did still. I mean, you know, I, I was born at a very lucky time for music because jazz was still in the hip parade when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. You know, I was 10 years old when, when, when Heartbreak Hotel came out. So 
I was there at a very lucky sort of cusp. Sort Sinatra was still in the charts, you know. A sort of a transitional time for music. Absolutely. And in England, you listened to all the American music? Oh, sure, yes, absolutely. And all, and all the great soundtracks. I mean, you know, all the great Broadway shows. And what about the English music, the Beatles and the Stones oh, and Tula yes. Clark and all those? People? Sure, yeah. Well, the, 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 the Beatles and the Stones particularly, of course, yeah. In terms of the film work that you, you wanted to do, have, do you, have you had the opportunity to do the kind of film work you've done? You've done so many character roles ranging from, from Red October, and, and you, you often seem to turn up either as the villain or the comic foil, or even a villain in those cases. Um, has that been what you've wanted to do? Not specially, no. I mean, hello, here I am. <laughs> <laughs> You know, after a while, you get sort of bored with anything, really. Um, I think more than anything, to be lucky enough to do several kinds of things um, is great because you know if you if you if you do the theatre and love it, um, it's nice to be able to do movies if they want you to do them. Um, it's nice to be able to do television. I mean, England's very good at that and I think that America's uh, uh, got a great deal better at, at allowing people to move from medium to medium and when when I started you didn't do that you you know I I I really had to sort of blaze a trail myself I mean you didn't even do if you did musicals you didn't do straight theater you know I mean it was really very compartmentalized and um so I just always hurled myself at, at, at those sort of barricades um, because I guess, you know, I guess I was, you know, determined to to play out all those contradictions. Is there anything that you have not done that you would like to do, whether it be professionally in the theater or just for fun, skydiving, anything at all? Oh, Skiing. Or, skiing. Skiing. I've never skied. It's a sort of rich man sport in England, and I was never rich. <laughs> um, but are there parts you haven't played, stage roles that you still want to take on? Henry Higgins. Hmm. Yeah. It's, it's about time for a revival of My Fair Lady, isn't it? Hmm. That would be interesting. Well, that would be great to see. Well, yeah. Tim Curry currently starring in Monty Python's Spamalot, the sold-out show here in New York. But you still get tickets in, in the future. Sure you can. Yes, of course. As King Arthur, of course. Thanks so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. You're very, very welcome. Thank you for having me. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding everyone that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing are available Live, on demand, for free, anytime you want it, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John von Susten for Downstage Center. That's a wrap, and thank you. Thank you.